Welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I am your hostess, Pat Rulo, and today I am so honored to share a Firebird Book Award winning author with you. She is Josie Olsvig, and two of her books won the Firebird Book Awards. The first is titled Growing Up Gullah in the Low Country, and it's a children's book. And the next is titled Gullah Tears, The Enslaved Souls of Charleston. Josie is a new Southern author who lives outside of Charleston, South Carolina. Prior to starting her writing life, she was an attorney and a social worker who spent her career addressing child abuse, domestic violence, sexual assault, and human trafficking. Then, after moving to the South from the Midwest, she became deeply interested in the Gullah culture and race-based slavery. Following a career fighting injustice, Josie chose to put pen to paper and focus on one of the greatest injustices of all time, slavery in the antebellum South. And we have so much to talk about today. So welcome to the network, Josie. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Congratulations on the book wins on both of them. Yes, thank you. It was wonderful. It was wonderful to have so many wins in different categories. I I was delighted. I was delighted, too, because I find your books, oh, they're very, very compelling. So we're going to get into those today. But before we do, I really think that your background obviously plays greatly into your advocacy and, and, and what you're writing today. So maybe I touched on it. Maybe just give us a little peek into your background so we can set the stage. Well, there's kind of two branches to this. I think my personal background uh, is an element here. I grew up in poverty in a single-parent family in the inner city. Um, I went to a predominantly black high school, and I worked in the black community uh, pretty much my whole life uh, in Ohio, Washington, D.C., primarily Fairfax County. Um, actually, I worked a lot with the immigrant community there. And all of that helps give me perspective. Um, I experienced a lot of victimization, a lot of violent crime living in the inner city. So I understand a lot about victimization. I understand about hardship uh, and trauma um, and uh, doing without uh, experiencing hunger. And I think that that helps me write a lot about the characters in my books. Um, beyond that, I, for 35 years or so, I dealt with child abuse, domestic violence, sexual assault, and then human trafficking. And again, uh, you know, I draw on some of the interviews that I had with victims, um, and their traumatic experiences, particularly when they were tied up and, uh, you know, had to endure some of the, the physical violence that they did. Um, I think particularly when I'm talking about coming across the Middle Passage um, and being in slaverships, that, that enduring of such hardship, I, I draw on what it was like uh, speaking with these victims. So um, that helps give me some insight about victims, my own personal experience, and then having worked with victims for so many years. Um, the social work experience helps, but then also that legal experience. Uh, when I went through law school, we did everything by hand. Uh, and that's still largely how I did my archival research. Um, I spent six years. I'm now approaching eight years in my research. Um, and I do it all, all by hand. Um, I copy things off. I make notes in the margins. I have over 300 secondary sources, but I've gone to um archival libraries and uh, sites 
kind of going from Hilton Head up to Washington, D.C. I went to the National African American Museum, the Library of Congress, the National Archives, um, some other places like that. I've been to the South Carolina Library, the Charleston, uh, South Carolina Room, where all our archives locally are kept, um, the Citadel. Um, I spent like a month there, uh, the Avery Research Institute, which was the first um, uh, school for blacks here. I've been to the Penn Center. So I've collected a lot of research that way. I've also read all the slave narratives. Most of uh, the more traumatic scenes in uh, Gulliteers, they were all based on slave narratives. Um, so when you read my book and you say, wow, could that really have happened? It really did. You know, I just took the scenario from the slave narratives and made it work for my characters. Sometimes it's a compilation of a couple scenes from a slave narrative, but it's it's all based in fact. Wow, Josie, just a whole lifetime of immersion, really. Was there a point or a time that clicked where you said, you know what, I need to I need to write about this? Was there something that happened or was that just an evolutionary process? Well, it, it was a calling. Uh, is uh, I did not envision taking this path, but it's been a journey. Um, I was still living elsewhere when I started to have a series of very vivid dreams. They were nothing like anything I had ever experienced in my life. Most of my dreams prior to that were kind of gray, black, and white. And then I started to have a series of dreams that were really like sitting in a movie theater, full color, very detailed. And uh, it was a dream about uh, an enslaved uh, black woman who was asking her master for um, manumission or freedom, and it escalated to an argument, and he ultimately murdered her. But this dream was so detailed. I mean, I can still recall she had on a light blue calico dress. I recall the little flowers in it. She had on a light blue choker. She had green eyes, uh, brown hair with little flecks of blonde in it. She was like five nine, slender waist. Uh, he was much older than her um, and had on a like a morning coat and a shirt with white ruffles. Um, and interestingly enough, I remember his shoes. Uh, he had on what I would call pilgrim shoes, black slip-on shoes with the big buckles. Um, and they were standing in front of this large fountain, and the pool of it, the bottom of it, came up to their waist. And um, as this argument uh, escalated, he grabbed her by the back of her head and plunged her head into the water and held her underwater. And as he did that, I felt the cold water hit my face and I could see these bubbles coming out of my mouth and I saw my right arm flailing trying to, to get away and then felt my body crumple. And uh, I had this dream six or eight times and I prayed to God, what does this mean? What, what am I supposed to do with this? And uh then the it's like, you know, it was always the straight-on vision, the same scene again and again. And then it's like the camera panned to the right, and I saw this toddler crying on the ground about his mother having just drowned. So it's, the message to me is there are descendants. There's a story here that goes on. Um, two months later, my husband got a transfer to Charleston out of the blue. 
Uh, we didn't see this coming. And I went ahead and picked out a house, and just because it felt comfortable, it felt right, would fit our needs, and I didn't know the significance of it at the time. I later found out that it was actually on the grounds of a uh, plantation. Um, and I went and took a, uh, a ride or a tour of this plantation. Now, you got to remember, I grew up in the inner city in the Midwest. I had I'd never seen a plantation before. So um, my whole understanding of what a plantation looked like was gone with the wind. So um, I get on a tour, and I'm in the back of the wagon, and we're going along, and all of a sudden we take this turn, and I see the scene I had seen in the dream. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) there is a message here, but still, God, what do I do with this? I understand there is intent. I'm supposed to do something with this. This is the place. But what do I do? And I kept getting this message, tell the truth about what happened. Tell the truth. And um, so I started researching it. And uh, honestly, I started thinking I was going to write a, a treatise or a nonfiction book. And I thought, no, it's more boring, you know. And so... I need to make it come alive as a story about real people that lived. And that's how I came to write the novel. Oh, my. <laughs> as you're telling me this, I'm I'm thinking of past life. Have you given that mm. consideration? Yes, I have. Um, and I have been told that, um, that the woman who is uh, killed yeah. in the book, I think it's chapter 16 or so that 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 I was that woman. Yeah. Do I? I don't know that I fully embrace that, mm-hmm. even though as vivid as that dream was. I, you know, all I can say is I think it's divine intervention. Mm-hmm. I'm called to write this story. Um, I to me it's a theory, yes. past life. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I I guess because I don't feel it in other ways. You know, right. I. Um, but it, all I know, I feel like it's a divine calling, and I'm supposed to tell the story and explain what has happened in slavery and uh, make people realize what the truth was uh, with slavery and how it still affects our lives. And that's what I think my calling is. Wow. Yes, regardless of why or where or who, um, yeah. yes, yeah, the, the books needed to be written and whatever sign you got, you know, we can debate that forever. But the point is yeah. that that the you got the job done. Before we talk about the book, let's talk about Gullah people. It's spelled G-U-L-L-A-H. I'm yes. not sure that many people know who they are. So give us an explanation of that. Yes. Yeah, I didn't know until I came down here who the Gullahs are. And they are um, descendants of enslaved people who were brought to the Low Country area. And they were brought from the west coast of Africa. There are certain countries uh, that they were brought from, uh, like Sierra Leone and uh, along the Ivory Coast there. And there has been a lot of research done on it. And they have basically isolated it because of the dialect. Um, A lot of research went into it. But the dialect of the Gullahs is not bad English. It is a blend of the African dialect in British English and its its own language. Um, but they were sought out because of their knowledge of how to grow rice. And the uh, English planters that were here had had no luck 
and planting it, but it was kind of an ideal land because right along the coastal area, about 30 miles in, um, you have uh, fresh water coming down through the rivers and whatnot, but yet you can ship on the salt water of the ocean and you have the impact of the draw of the moon and the, the, um, the, uh, ooh, what do I want to say? The, the, the pull there of the ocean that will affect, um, the water. So the, they had the knowledge. Rice is a very complicated, uh, product to grow. It has five stages of, of, uh, you have to irrigate it, drain it, you have to build up dikes, um, you have to, constantly be vigilant about cutting it back and pulling weeds and whatnot. And so they had all this knowledge for about 2,000 years before they were brought over. And the Gullah Corridor extends actually from Wilmington, North Carolina, down to the northern part of Florida, 30 miles in, because this was the ideal area to be growing rice in. And so the culture kind of flourished um, even after slavery, because many parts of it were isolated, particularly right here and around between Charleston and Savannah because of the Sea Islands. Um, they were unaffected after slavery, and they were, were able to keep their culture intact. Yeah, that was the perfect geographic location. Um, you had yeah, the salt yeah. water, the fresh water, and then you have these folks who know how to grow and tend and, and produce this product. I can see how that all all came together. So let's talk about your first book, uh, the children's book, Growing Up Gullah in the Low Country. Maybe give us a little peek into that. Okay. I have been doing research for probably two or three years um, on the Gullah culture and starting to to actually draft some of, um, for the book, for the novel. And I saw uh, a young woman, probably 10, 12 years old, appear on national TV on a morning show, and she said she was trying to collect children's books um, about African-American children. She didn't think there were very many ch uh, children's books about uh, children of color, and um, she was encouraging people to write them, and she was trying to collect them. And I thought, you know what? I haven't really seen a children's book on the Gullah culture that really explains all the different aspects of it. And I did do a little research, uh, particularly around the area, and there would be, I did find books like on baskets, the sweetgrass baskets, mm -hmm. or, you know, certain narrow aspects of it, but not, you know, kind of the whole waterfront of what, who Gullahs are, what, what are different aspects of the culture. So I thought at that point, you know, I really have enough research to explain all the different aspects of who the Gullahs are, what something called heirs property is, how they came to get the heirs property, the importance of faith, the different uh, aspects of cuisine, things like that. And so I decided to take that research and make uh, a very simplistic book to explain the fundamentals of what the Gullah culture is because I found that even young Gullahs didn't necessarily understand uh, who the Gullahs were. Um, some of their own culture is fading from them. So I, I decided to devise that book. And the illustrations are stunning. Yes. Um, I was very picky about making sure that those illustrations were right. Um, at the time, again, I was living uh, in Mount Pleasant, which at one time was all Gullah, an entire Gullah area. And 
Unfortunately, it's been developed quite a bit um, since the 1980s. But um, I was right by some of the original Gullah area, and um, that picture on the front porch is what I consider the fundamental Gullah heirs property picture. It is of a grandmother and a granddaughter sitting on the front porch snapping peas, just talking about the history of the area. And that's kind of a typical Gullah uh, house. And um, what we have here locally is something called heirs property, which was given um, after the Civil War. Uh, it is a smaller property where um, you will have five or six people in the extended family have a cluster of houses on this property, all very close together, and it's kin living together. Uh, it's grandmother, uncle, aunt, and they live together and have meals together, and they take care, you know, they help all collectively take care of the children together. Um, and so I wanted to relay that story and the importance of kin, kinship, um, which really goes back to slave slavery times, you know, down in the slave village, if um, a slave was sold off or somebody died, people would step in and help take care of uh, the children. So at any rate, then I wanted to also talk about all the different important aspects of um, of the Gullah culture, you know, like faith, family, cuisine, um, and the whole history of it. And so that's what I uh, sketched out. And the uh, Gullah vernacular art is that very vivid um, artwork, very vivid colors. Uh, that's typical. And so we worked a long time to get it right, and I worked with uh, leaders of the Gullah community around Mount Pleasant. Uh, I had them look at it to make sure that, you know, they thought I got it right. There are a couple terms I know in the book um, they, you know, told me what they would call like grandma and stuff. Uh, I know there was something about uh, cooking on the chimney they told me to include. So uh, we worked collaboratively to make sure everything was right in that book, and they kind of approved it and adjusted it. Uh, so I, I think we worked hard to make sure everything was correct and culturally appropriate. You could tell. I mean, it, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. I was so excited when we received it. I just sat there and held it for a while. And before I even read it, I went through the first time and just looked at all the pictures like a little kid <laughs> <laughs> and then read it. And then I started doing some research and went online. I actually went to a place called Gullah Gourmet and I ordered a whole bunch of Gullah foods. And it was, it was <laughs> yeah, so you, you've taught me quite a bit as well. I'm very, very interested in this. I remember being in Charleston many times and seeing the, at some art shows or craft shows and seeing the, the women with the sweet grass baskets, but never really took the time to understand, I guess, who these folks were. So uh, when I received your books, I was thrilled to learn. And so your next book titled Gullah Tears, that, that's a stunning book. Maybe give us a peek into that. That is a historical fiction novel, and it's very heavy on historical fact and the whole story about the Gullah people and race-based slavery and the history of Charleston. Charleston was different than other uh, cities in the Deep South. It was a city founded by harsh masters from Barbados, and they adopted the Black Code that had been established in Barbados some of the first um, colonies around here were the slave colonies were in Barbados where they had sugarcane plantations. 
Um, and so we were a little bit different here. We were uh, more structured, um, and uh, it, it was all ran a little bit differently. We had um, also uh, the workhouse and uh, what was called the sugar house um, that was kind of like a dungeon where uh, enslaved blacks were, were beaten for a quarter. Um, but uh, so we had very large uh, plantations around the area. Sometimes um, you would have as many as two or 500 slaves. Um, but I take it from the very beginning of the Middle Passage capture in Africa, the Middle Passage landing um, on Sullivan's Island at the pestilence houses where they were kept for a couple of weeks to make sure they weren't bringing in disease, landing at Gadsden's Wharf. Uh, which was the biggest port of slavery in the Americas. Um, more than half of the slaver ships landed there at Gatson's Wharf, which is where the uh, International African American Museum is being built. Which, uh, it will open in uh, the fall of next year, 2022. Um, and uh, I believe it's somewhere over 80% of all people of color can trace their heritage to Gatson's Wharf. Uh, through one line or another, through the mother or the father, and even um, Michelle Obama can trace her heritage to Ganson's Wharf. So um, that's where uh, slave sales would be. Initially, they were just on the open streets. They would strip them naked and have them jump, and you would check their mouths out and things like that. The sales happened on the street. Eventually, um, ladies, white ladies, were offended by that, so they had closed slave markets. Um, but that's where a lot of the activity happened. And then I explained through there how, um, all, you know, plantation life worked. Um, how we had the task system and the gang method of, uh, working on plantation. Gang method being you would have a, a whole group of slaves doing the same thing at the same time. And then over time, they decided to do the task method, which meant that you would assign a task like, um, each person would be ordered to make, let's say, two barrels a day or to work um, a quarter acre of land for the day, something like that, and it seemed to work out better. Um, I explained how much food they got. Um, you would get so much, like, flour, salt, um, and a pound and a quarter of meat a week, which, of course, was not enough to sustain slaves when they were working 15 plus hours a day out in the heat. Um, I explained how they had to be able to, you know, grow their own garden, to hunt on their own, and then some of the other traditions that they had, the, the praise house. Initially, they weren't allowed to have their own faith, so they had to, further out on the plantation, have um, what was called a praise house, where they would um, use developed their own faith. Uh, it was a kind of a combination of Christian faith and African spirituality. And then I also explained the, um, the cemeteries and burial uh, practices, which again kind of blended Christianity and African practices. Um, the black cemeteries were always separate from the white cemeteries. They were close to the water due to this belief that the spirit would travel back over the water back to Africa. Um, I'm trying to think of the other things that I explained in there, but I tried to cover all of 
the Gullah culture and explain all of it as well as how a plantation worked. Um, I think I also explained growing rice. It was a very difficult, ugly practice, you know, where you had snakes and alligators and uh, yellow fever um, was, you know, went rampant through there because it grew in the water. Uh, the mosquitoes would, you know, uh, lay eggs there and it, people died. Um, but I tried to, to kind of cover the waterfront and explain everything. And I know other authors, you know, it, it was not a cookbook novel. Um, I didn't keep to the typical style. A lot of other authors just kind of wash over that kind of, those kind of facts. But I tried to explain how the whole system worked and explain all the details and the ugliness of how slavery works, including you know, the workhouse and the slave catchers and the brutality of it. I don't think other books really got into how brutal slavery was with things like hacking off ears and uh, hacking off noses and burning people alive just to send this chill of terror to the black community. That was the intent of it. But when people were hung, they would leave the bodies there for three weeks at a time just so everybody would see that they will kill you and, and, leave you there you know yes yes it is definitely a profound work and i thank you for writing it for for caring enough to take the time to research and to to put it out there because people need to know this yeah i that was my whole mission that in my god moment the message i was getting is tell the truth yep. about what happened yep. and that's what i tried to do Again, this is not a cookbook novel. It's not cookie cutter. It is designed to be a teaching tool mm -hmm. to educate people about the real heart of what slavery was like yes. Um, yes. and to come to terms with it. Absolutely, and to see to it that nothing like that ever happens again. Yeah, yep. and unfortunately, <laughs> uh, there are some things, you know, that are occurring just like it. Yep, um, there are, and that's why I said that because you would think <laughs> you would think that people would learn from the past and, and not allow this kind of thing to happen. So I highly suggest everybody get a copy of this book, Gullah Tears by Josie Olsvig. All right, my friend, what's next? What are you working on now? I know something good is in the works. Yeah. So um, actually, Gullah Tears is the first in what I believe will will be a series of books. I thought it would be a trilogy, but I think it's going to have to be four books. So the next book will be about the Civil War. It moves from Charleston down um, to uh, Buford and the Sea Islands area because this is where Reconstruction really started. The Union Army took over uh, Buford and Port Royal about seven months into the war, and the early stages of um, Reconstruction happened here at um, at the Penn Center. This is also where uh, Harriet Tubman came early on in the war. Uh, Clara Barton was here and some other uh, important players. So I need to talk about that, how things uh, went down. And um, I'll carry that through, uh, through Emancipation Day and the end of the war. And then uh, the next book will be about Reconstruction and uh, all the wonderful things that did happen early on. There were probably eight years that, that were good. Um, we had some patchwork of legislation. Unfortunately, there were some pitfalls with that. Uh, but we did have um, 
you know, some legislators who got into Congress. Robert Smalls from the area was one of them. Um, but then there was a lot of pushback that started to happen and a lot of ugliness. And that's also when the Confederate statues went up and all that kind of thing. But um, that's when Jim Crow laws started to come around, 1890, 1900. So I need to talk about that era. And then I'm going to take it through to the Tuskegee Airmen. And there actually was a link between the Tuskegee model and what was used in uh, here at the Penn Center uh, in, in teaching and training uh, the newly liberated uh, slaves uh, during the Civil War. So that is my game plan, to take it through Tuskegee Airmen, World War II, and then I hope to stop and enjoy retirement. That's the game plan. <laughs> All right. best The best laid plans, right? Yeah, I know. But already, you know, I have started to go out and kind of preach the word, if you will, and talk about, you know, how we need to learn from these lessons. Um, and, um, you know, the history that has happened and, and extrapolate, you know, some some information from this and learn from our past and take that information and hopefully gain some insight. So I, I actually am going to the Midwest next month and then I'm planning a tour uh, through New England uh, in the fall of 2022. So I know there will be a lot of um, speaking engagements and things mm-hmm. like that coming up. Well, thank you for advocating for this. It's We need this now more than ever. So I so, yes. so appreciate yeah. you. I really do. All right, before we begin to wrap up, anything we missed that you wanted to highlight? The books um, that I have written are available on Amazon and Goodreads and then local bookstores between um, kind of the Charleston area, north of Charleston, and then down through Buford and Savannah. A lot of local bookstores have them, but on a national basis, it is Amazon and Goodreads. And I know actually they're selling well over in Europe and the UK. What bookstores carry it over there, I'm not sure. So I think it's just Amazon. All righty. So we're speaking with Josie Olsvig, and her books are titled Growing Up Gullah in the Low Country and Gullah Tears, The Enslaved Souls of Charleston. This has been so fascinating. I knew that there was going to be a lot to talk about, and, and your books touched me and are extremely meaningful to me, and I know that they will be to others. Your website is what, JosieOlsvig.com? Yes. Okay, yeah. good. All right, any final words before we head out? No, that's it. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs>